Kia I'm Tom Kitchen, and today on The Detail, a transformational idea. What is a 15-minute city? Food, medicine, education and leisure, all within a 15-minute walk or cycle. For me, it's all about having safe, healthy, thriving uh, neighbourhoods all across our city. Has become a global conspiracy. This is George Orwell on steroids. It's a dystopian hell. Make no mistake, it's not about your convenience. It's not that they want you to be able to, you know, uh, have uh, all of these places that you need to get to very close. Um, and it's not about saving the planet either, by the way. The 15-minute cities, they will have to have those before they can lock you down. And it's hitting New Zealand. The conspiracy theories have also been shipped our way. Cheers, Internet. Letterboxes in places like Palmerston North and Central Otago have been full of this stuff, with pamphlets saying things such as no more weekends away and you can't travel outside a zone. We look at 15-minute cities, what they are, why it's becoming a conspiracy trend and how we can move the conversation. First, Auckland University Senior Lecturer in Architecture and Planning, Bill Mackay, tells us about the background of the 15-minute city idea. It stems from a movement that goes back decades called New Urbanism, uh, which was basically saying, look, we've spent 100 years commuting from suburbs, mainly in cars. We need to get back to kind of like a much more sustainable way of doing things. But it didn't hit the mainstream until 2015. There's a, a guy called um, Carlos Marino who really popularised it. I would like to offer a concept of cities that goes in the opposite direction to modern urbanism. An attempt at converging life into a human-sized space rather than fracturing it into inhuman bigness and then forcing us to adapt. I call it the 15-minute city. In New Zealand, we take it for granted that we live in suburbs uh, and that we commute to where we need to go, whether it's supermarket or dropping kids at school or going to work. That is really only 100 years old that we've been living that way. In the late 1890s, the idea of the satellite city that would be a residential dormitory basically came up and you would commute by train or public transport and then the car kind of replaced that and we got motorways and that sort of thing. But actually it's a highly artificial way of living. So the idea of the 15-minute city is kind of taking us back to how cities used to be hundreds of years ago where you could actually live not too far from where you work, where you do your shopping. Small towns are the same as well. Uh, remember how you used to be able to go into a small rural town, there would be a bank, there would be a post office, there would be a doctor, there would be a chemist, but there aren't anymore. The car is largely responsible for that change. Yeah, uh, the, the idea of the satellite city was, you know, it was a British concept, so we, we would commute from the nice green residential suburb into the city to work. You know, the breadwinner would the man of the family. Then um, that commuting train got replaced by motorways in the post-war period. Also, we started to see um, people using cars as ways of getting away from their constraints of their small towns and their neighbourhoods and all of that. Cars really do represent freedom to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So there's a whole bunch of things conflating here. 
So is there anywhere in particular in New Zealand that has already embraced this 15-minute city idea? Um, because of the Christchurch rebuild, they were quite conscious of the concept of the 15- or 20-minute city in the planning of that, whether it's been successful or not, is another story. Um, Hamilton in particular have really been pushing it. In Hamilton, a 20-minute city proposal is being considered. We knew all along that Hamilton was the perfect city, didn't we? But it's important not to think that it is purely about getting into the city, the central area of cities uh, or towns. It can be about your neighbourhood as well. Essentially, the idea is that um, why should we have to jump in a car and go to a mall? Why can't we actually find a lot of our daily needs? nearby. It's also important to realise that the 15-minute, 20-minute city concept is also about active modes of transport, so more walking, more cycling. There's nowhere in New Zealand that's really doing it particularly well. I, I would say that it's very difficult to apply it in New Zealand because a lot of our towns and cities have developed with the car. Um, being fundamental to them, whereas a lot of the older world cities, they were walking cities, horse and buggy cities, that sort of thing. Then they had cars retrofitted to them, so it's much easier to take the cars back out of the centre of London or the centre of Paris and go back to how it always was, whereas it's much more difficult to take a big, sprawling New Zealand town or city and then make that more walkable. Well, I mean, we're in Auckland, you live in Auckland. Can Auckland ever be a 15-minute city? Um, it is difficult in the way that Auckland has grown and it's set up. You, know, you really do have to move around. Um, but we've also had this whole period of centralising things. All the cinemas used to be in the central city. We've still got a few suburban ones surviving. But there was always this notion that you would get on a tram on uh, Friday or Saturday night and go into town uh, in the 1950s and back again. Well, that's certainly changed. <laughs> yeah. I, I am sceptical about how a lot of these ideas essentially come from old world cities in Europe and even precast cities such as Manhattan, for example. I am sceptical about how you can actually apply them uh, to much younger cities such as we've got and Australia's got as well. Mm. Is there anywhere around the world that's doing 15-minute cities well? Uh, Portland, Oregon actually goes way back. I think they came up with a plan in about 2012. Portland, where I live, is well known for its planning. Streetcars, cycling, green and historic buildings, the urban growth boundary. However, above all of these things, Portland is special because of its many unique neighborhoods. Current planning policy is geared toward the 20-minute neighborhood concept which would ideally make all daily essentials accessible for all residents within a 20-minute walk of their front doors. It became a very hip city. You know, it had a really good food and music scene, a lot of young people living there, and they tended to more embrace this kind of idea. So it might sound like a good idea. How did it ever turn into a global conspiracy? Here's researcher and author Byron C. Clark. He wrote the book Fear, New Zealand's Hostile Underworld of Extremists. I've become aware of the 15-minute city conspiracy theories largely because I'm seeing what were COVID conspiracy theories segueing into climate change conspiracy theories. So the 15-minute city concept gets 
adapted into that with the, this idea of that we're going to have climate lockdowns and the government's going to force you to stay in your 15-minute zone around your neighbourhood and all these things like that to create that same fear that was out there during the pandemic. So this kind of developed off the back of COVID. You know, we didn't really have a conspiracy anymore, so we had to go to the next one. That appears to be be the case. I mean, any, anyone who's out there trying to fearmonger about lockdowns and vaccine mandates isn't going to have a lot of success because there aren't going to be any more COVID lockdowns and the mandates for vaccines are all but gone. But if you start to tell people that sinister supranational organisations like uh, like the UN and the World Health Organisation or the World Economic Forum are bringing in all these things that are going to be similar to lockdowns, like um, claiming that a 15-minute city is going to be a neighbourhood with uh, heavy surveillance that the government or the city council is not going to let you leave and they're going to restrict your use of a motor vehicle. You can use that to generate the same kind of fear that people had around some of the public health measures we saw around COVID. And I think with uh, climate change becoming a much bigger thing over the next few years, we start to see some more impacts of it and we also start to try and adapt to this new world we're going to see the growth in these kind of climate change conspiracy theories. Although in saying that, I mean, the conspiracy theories around the United Nations and around climate change go back a lot before COVID as well. Mm. Um, This fear of particularly the United Nations, but supranational organisations in general, a lot of it can be traced to the John Birch Society in the US. The John Birch Society emerged from the Cold War, continued to nurture the ideology of the Red Scare and of government conspiracy, making it one of the senior groups in the far-right American political landscape here in the 21st century. Who believed that uh, the United Nations was part of an insidious plot to implement global communism. And, and they were, right from when the Sustainable Development Goals were announced. The United Nations General Assembly was the scene of a celebration in 2015, when 193 member countries adopted the Sustainable Development Goals, a unanimous commitment to end poverty, fight inequality, and tackle climate change. They were claiming this is all part of that insidious plot. And so so that conspiracy has been around for a while. So all of this has been out there. And now as, as that movement looks for something else post-pandemic, this is something that they're hitching the wagon to. And how was this conspiracy being spread? Largely through sort of social media and alternative media. It's been mentioned a few times on Reality Check Radio, um, gets discussed in channels on the social media app Telegram, which yeah. is where a lot of people who have been banned from more mainstream social media like Facebook have uh, have ended up. The Reality um, Check Radio, that's the Voices for Freedom That's the uh, Voices for Freedom platform, yeah. 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 So anywhere else that um, it's been spread? There's a lot of stuff overseas that then gets shared in New Zealand social media. So there was a protest against 15-minute cities in, uh, in Oxford in the United Kingdom. Articles about that would then get shared to a New Zealand audience and more New Zealand social media. You haven't got a brochure in your letterbox, have you? I haven't got a brochure in my letterbox, no, but I, I think I am aware that uh, there was some brochure going around uh, which mentioned 15-minute cities, among other things. Yeah, I mean, there was some going around Central Otago and, and Palmerston North. And, uh, I mean, if you didn't know anything, <laughs> and even though it is, they are quite extreme, um, you could be 
convinced. Yeah, I'm just reading some of it, like no more camping holidays by the river, no more weekends away, uh, no more freedom to travel outside of your 15-minute zone. It, it really just sounds like a, a big brother 1984 dystopia. Yeah, and it's, and it's ridiculous because really it's about, you know, having all the amenities that you need close to your home, which... I think most people would see it's very convenient and uh, and a positive thing. But, yeah, it's being portrayed as, you know, you won't be able to leave your 15-minute neighbourhood. And, you know, people are making that connection there with the lockdowns that we had during the pandemic, um, Mm -hmm. when really it's not at all related to to lockdowns. Bill Mackay's seen a lot of these pamphlets too. What does he think? I think there's a real spectrum going on here. Um, On one extreme, you've got, in my opinion, idiots. But at the other end of the spectrum, uh, you've got people who are sceptical as well. In Auckland, for example, we're seeing um, the city trying to stop people driving from uh, one side of the central area to the other. And people are concerned about limitations on their mobility in terms of cars. It's very difficult to get people out of their cars and get them walking and getting them on public transport. So I think you've got the scepticism at one end of the spectrum, but then you've got this outright lunacy at the other end of the spectrum. So some healthy form of scepticism is okay? Uh, I think so. Um, We also have a special relationship with our cars because you know the extent to which people kind of see their cars as extensions of themselves, you know, hence road rage, that kind of thing, people personalising their cars, all of that sort of thing. In a way, New Zealanders see their cars a bit like Americans see guns. Um, You you know, (laughs) don't you dare try and take that off me. I haven't heard that one before. (laughs) Well, another way of thinking about cars is they're like pets. They're actually bad for the environment. They spend 95% of their time lying around doing nothing. They're way more expensive to keep than you really think, but we love them. One of the things I'm trying to get across here is that there's a mix of kind of love of cars suspicion about congestion charges, trying to keep cars out of cities that has been conflated with the 15-minute city notion. Beyond our love of cars, why else might New Zealanders start picking up on this narrative? Here's Byron C. Clark's take. I see a lot of talk as well about wanting to depopulate rural areas and have people move into the cities, which in Aotearoa, New Zealand, gets, um, gets a bit of interest because... There's a worry there among um, farmers and other people in rural New Zealand that they're losing some of their political influence and they feel that depopulating rural areas, which isn't happening deliberately, but populations are growing in the cities faster than they're growing in rural areas, and they believe that's going to lead to them having less political influence because they have less representation in parliament and so on. So Mm. when you've got people saying... The global elites want to get us all in cities and they want to um, build huge tower blocks and have us living there rather than living, uh, you know, in the provinces and the rural areas. That can be tied into this idea that the rural sector is going to lose its uh, political voice by having people concentrated in cities. So what you're saying is it's pretty easy for people to get sucked in by this. I think so, yeah. I think um, even if you weren't somebody who got into COVID conspiracy theories, you could hear about this and think um, they're trying to take away a rural voice in politics or even that they're 
uh, when I say they, these you know nefarious elites or government or whoever um, are trying to take away your use of a private motor vehicle or try and control what you do with uh, with your own property or or what have you. So I think people can be sucked into this even if they haven't necessarily been a conspiracy theory type before. What's the drive to spread these kind of theories? I mean, not only just with 15-minute cities, but with all the other ones you've covered, you must have mm. learned a bit about that. Yeah, there's a mixture of true believers and people who you could call grifters. I think um, for some people, conspiracy theories are a way to gain financially if you're you know, running your alternative media platform or gain politically if you're starting one of these political parties or political parties could even be a way to gain financially if you're soliciting donations and things. Is there any pushback happening to authorities around this that you've seen? I mean, obviously, we've talked about the brochures, but Mm. are there any of these conspiracy theorists going to councils, going to the government, trying to make their point? Yeah, I mean, there was a, a meeting in Hamilton around this issue that was disrupted by conspiracy theorists who caused the uh, councillors who were speaking to have, to have to leave the meeting. We're probably, probably going to see more of that, uh, maybe. A big question, but how do you think we can beat these conspiracy theories? It's a difficult question. Um, what people believe tends to depend not on how accurate or how true the information is, but the relationship that they have with the person sharing that information with them. So um, somebody who is developing these parasocial relationships with social media influencers, uh, they're going to start believing conspiracy theories because they trust the person who is spreading them. Or if they know someone personally who is sharing this information with them, they may trust that person even more. So I think... um, if you have people in your life, whether it's friends or whanau or uh, work colleagues who are talking about these things, talk with them about what the actual information is, what what a 15-minute city really is and what the UN Sustainable Development Goals are actually about, and, and maybe then they can be convinced. But, you know, of course it's a difficult one because it's not an individual problem, really. It's a, it's a social issue, and um, we have to deal with it sort of as a society. And I, I don't think we, myself or anyone else has really figured out the way that we do that yet. Have you given any thought to how we can balance freedom of expression with making sure we're not spreading misinformation? I think, I think in the case of social media, there are things that can be done. I don't think that a person has an inherent right to have a YouTube channel or a Facebook page. And I think that these private platforms deciding that certain types of content will not be permissible on their platforms, I think that's reasonable. Um, Or even if they were to decide that you can put that kind of content on the platforms, but if they were to make sure that their algorithms are not promoting that content and putting it in front of people who aren't even seeking it out, a real problem with social media has been that things that elicit a strong emotional response, whether that's anger or outrage or or whatever, will become popular. So the algorithms have started serving people this kind of conspiracy theory content because that will keep them watching for longer and that allows them to see more advertisements, which is how these social media platforms make their money. So if they were to take some social responsibility and say, 
yes, we're here as an advertising company, but we're not going to allow conspiratorial content or hateful content or, or other harmful content. I think that would make a big difference. Because a lot of the groups in New Zealand have started from social media. That's where the conspiracy started to mm. evolve. Yeah, and any changes that will happen to social media, and some of these changes I'm talking about have been at least in part implemented, but it's coming quite late in the piece. And so some of these groups like Voices for Freedom are already really well established. And there is a kind of alternative social media ecosystem now with platforms like Telegram that don't have the kind of moderation that Facebook and YouTube have. This is not going to be a complete solution, but could only be be part of it. I think another thing that is important is is having correct information out there, having the accurate information out there. Um, and it's difficult because it's a lot harder to refute misinformation than it is to create misinformation. I think putting some more resources into that kind of thing, not uh, debunking as such, but what sometimes is called uh, pre-bunking, making sure people have correct and accurate information before they hear the misinformation or the disinformation. So um, certainly I think in the case of 15-minute cities, if any local government authority is looking at implementing some of these things, they need to be on the front foot with the conspiracy theories that are going to come out in response to them doing that. How could we move beyond this conspiracy, try and get some, you know, good perspective on this? One of the ways that we will start to see it happening is through changes in our central cities. During COVID, we all learned to work remotely. We are seeing an emptying out of office buildings in the central city. Uh, The only future that I can see for central cities, whether it's Tauranga or Hamilton or Christchurch or Auckland, uh, is to convert those office buildings into residential. Uh, And then we will be seeing people living closer to where they study, at university, for example, living closer to where most of the entertainment, uh, the cinemas, the waterfront, uh, the big events, all of those sorts of things. If I were really pushing the idea of the 15-minute city, I would try and shift the conversation away from cars and make it more about making life easier and saving time for everyone. That's it for today. I'm Tom Kitchen. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell. It was produced by Bonnie Harrison, Mark Jennings and Alexia Russell. Thanks to Bill Mackay and Byron C. Clark. Hey, Kornar.